Algar Productions. Algar Productions. I'm Ron Algar Watt, and this is More Bits. This is an interview with writer Michael Charles Hill, who worked on a number of animated TV series through the 80s, including Gem, My Little Pony, Centurions, and of particular relevance to me, G.I. Joe and Transformers. For the former, he wrote the infamous Cold Slither episode in which the evil terrorist organization Cobra goes bankrupt and decides to bankroll their big comeback by funding a heavy metal song containing sinister subliminal messages. And for the latter, he was responsible for my single favorite episode, Starscream's Brigade, in which backstabbing Decepticon underling Starscream creates an army to overthrow Megatron. This interview was recorded in May of 2010, originally as an episode of Sarcastic Voyage. I would say that I am still to this day trying to find my legs as an interviewer, but back then I was struggling with technology issues and the logistics of including my Sarcastic Voyage co-host, Matt Robotham. So between all that and the lengthy pauses resulting from our Skype-to-cellphone connection, I ask that you bear with this being a bit less polished than my usual offerings. But all of those issues notwithstanding, Mr. Hill was a great sport and gave us some fantastic answers, so I think this recording is still very much worth your time. All right, our guest this week, I'm very excited to talk to. Uh, He has written for a lot of my childhood favorites, probably some of yours as well, Transformers, G.I. Joe... Uh, Gem, Teenage Mutant mm-hmm. Ninja Turtles. Uh, what else were you telling us, Michael? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Dragon's Lair, RoboCop, Cops. That's uh, right. Uh, your IMDb page is a bit of a mess. Like you, the the names you rattled off aren't even close to what the internet thinks that you've done. Yeah, I was flipping through that earlier. Yeah, I, I'm always curious as to where they get that information from. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, Michael Charles Hill, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on and making some time for us. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, above all, before we get to anything else, um, you are the guy responsible for uh, one, Cold Slither, <laughs> which has quite the cult following among people we know and, and mm-hmm. everywhere, and uh, two, the, the, the PSAs on G.I. Joe, which... I only just found out recently that you had told me when we spoke earlier. And that uh, is that's guilty. really cool. Yeah, guilty on both counts. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm not sure if if you can really grasp that there's an entire generation of us, maybe even more, that just if someone says, "Now you know," immediately the response is, "Knowing is knowing half is the half the battle." This yeah, is without even thinking. <laughs> and and you're right. It was. Uh... I think it might have been a popular catchphrase at the time, mm-hmm. but I just assumed it sort of died out. Oh, no. Because I, I, for many years, I had no idea that these shows had lived on sort of in the hearts and minds of not only our original audience, but now the children of our original audience. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm in mm-hmm. my mid-30s, and, and my friends who have kids are now raising their kids on Transformers, GI Joe, and, and so forth. So I mean, yeah, they're they're enjoying your stuff now too, which is oh, here, son. Let uh, let a guy, let an army guy from the '80s teach you not to talk to strangers. <laughs> and I and I trust you that you have seen some of the parodies that are. Oh, actually, we were gonna we were gonna ask you about that actually because uh, as the creator of those, I'm I'm curious how you how you take that. Um. They were, it was pointed out to me, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, and at first I was kind of surprised, mm-hmm. 
but also um, I thought they were very clever. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, when I wrote those things, I thought they were throwaways. I didn't think anybody really ever paid attention, had no idea that they would create a life of their own. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no possible way back in the mid-'80s you could have imagined, you know, DVD or the Internet or, you know, I mean, bringing fans together and giving us a way to, to watch the stuff over and over again and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah, there's no way you could have known that. But uh, it was amazing to me that you were telling me the, the way you guys produced episodes. I guess you would overwrite an episode? Is that is that the right way to say that? Yes. We would write um, maybe 55 to 60 pages. And, now, and what does that equate to in, in, in screen time for an actual animated show? I know for live action, it's like a page a minute. Yeah. So it would be maybe half a page. Okay. It would be a minute. Because in animation, and I'm assuming it's still done this way today, I know I still do it, is that everything that happens on the screen, everything that you see visually, has to be written in. Mm-hmm. And so, you, so in the old days, you know, the writers were gag men. Mm-hmm. And it was really the storyboard artists who created um, not only the look of the show, but, you know, the overall theme of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a, a simple example, if you have a character who enters the screen from, say, the left frame, you have to write that in. Or if you have a character running towards the camera, mm-hmm. you write it in. So it's so it it's, it's a lot like writing a comic book where you have to tell the artist exactly what they're you know what they're showing. Yeah, and so in a sense, you be, you also become the director, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you can control the look of it. And I I really enjoyed doing that, mm-hmm. and it made it the storyboard artist job a lot easier as well. Sure. So you so would... what would happen is everything would be animated, and then it would be cut to time, which I think was, you know, 22 minutes for a, for a, a half-hour slot. So you would, you would write up to 30 minutes of, of animation and up to 8 minutes of that would be just chopped out and, and thrown away? Pretty much. And it usually would be trims. It wouldn't be like a whole scene. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and you can sometimes tell watching. I mean, you know, the, the continuity more or less was, was pretty decent, but, you know, every now and then there'd be like obviously a piece of dialogue missing or obviously, but it never occurred to me that you guys would actually record the dialogue, animate it, and then edit it out. That seems, you know, all the, all the DVD extra features and everything I've watched over the years about animation, just that, that seems kind of, I mean, kind of wasteful. Well, in in today's uh, world, it would be wasteful. Mm -hmm. And um, even Deke at the time, and I end up writing a couple of G.I. Joe's, when Deke was producing them, mm-hmm. you know, they were very thrifty. I think maybe our scripts were, you know, 30 to 35 pages long. Mm-hmm. And they were notorious for having a lot of static shots, sure. a lot of over-the-shoulder shots so that the, the character who's, you know, back of the head that you were seeing, he was the one doing the talking so they didn't <laughs> have to animate it. Just jiggle the shoulder <laughs> a little bit and... <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic! Wow. So, you were you were involved. I, I my primary focus obviously is Transformers. I'm a big fan, and you happened to write. And I'm, and I'm not just saying this because we got you on the show. You really did write my favorite episode, and and another one that I would put in the top ten, which is Star Screams Brigade, and then uh, Burden Hardest to Bear. Um, 
And I mentioned this to you when I talked to you before, and uh, because this was, you know, one job among money so many years ago, you probably don't even remember, but uh, when I was 11, 12, whatever, this was my absolute favorite episode, but there's like one plot point that gets reinforced and reinforced throughout the whole episode, and then suddenly it's just gone. And and it drove me insane, and, and the way you wrote it, I can't imagine you forgot about this thing that you kept reminding us about. I, so I can only imagine they must have trimmed something out. I, 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 there's just no other explanation. And that would, and that would be my guess as well, mm -hmm. because I, you know, I, I, I know um, myself as a writer, and I wouldn't ha if I if I was making a point about something, I wouldn't just automatically forget it. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and and in the context also, of the episode. It also, oh, go ahead. Right. And it also sounds like something that I may have missed when Marvel sent me a copy of the final cut uh -huh. and I watched it and I didn't see that, oh, wait a minute, you know, you took out a very important scene. Right. Well, but, but again, I, you know, favorite episode, huge action and, and all kinds of stuff. The, the thing that got me was there, you know, the character Starscream played by Chris Lotta, always trying to take over, always trying to be, you know, like second in command of the, of the bad guys, always trying to stab the guy in the back and, and be the main guy. You're the only one who let him win. And I just, I, I love that. I love that you let the, the jerk actually, you know, take over for a little while, and it's fantastic. Well, he was a great character to write for. And, um, again, I would always look and see, well, what are the, you know, the other writers doing with the character or the stories that they're doing, and i try and come up with, you know, a, a completely different idea. Sure. And also, it was just, Let's have some fun. Yeah, and, and there's definitely a, a, a feeling of that, and, and mm. we talked about that before as well, where I guess the group of you guys working on all these different shows weren't, you know, entrenched in the in the industry, and so you kind of brought a fresh pair of eyes to this whole thing. Yeah, as I mentioned to you before, a lot, a lot of us, um, you know, before I started working on G.I. Joe and Transformer, I only worked on one show, and that was uh, Dragon's Lair. Mm -hmm. So the the whole animation world was new to me, and my background was film. Sure. So what what I sort of brought to the table was, you know, thinking of these as live action shows. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve Gerber and and Mark and Len, you know, they, they came with a comics background. Mm -hmm. Flint, his background was games. So we all brought something a little different to the table, but because, as you mentioned earlier. You know, we hadn't been schooled in the old Hanna-Barbera style of doing cartoons. Um, we sort of made our own rules because we didn't know that we couldn't. Right, and to kids watching at the time, it felt very different. It felt it had a whole different feel to it. Like, they're actually telling, you know, stories with characters. They're actually doing different science fiction stuff. That was the appeal to me for Transformers and for G.I. Joe was... The, the science fiction, the weird stuff you would come up with, and, you know, it didn't always make sense, but it didn't always have to. Yeah. And uh, something like Cold Slither, where it's, I mean, utterly ludicrous premise, but just friggin' brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, and that was just maybe one of three or six pitches I made. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just trying to... to uh, Get somebody excited about it, uh, an idea, mm -hmm. and 
essentially it was just a Pied Piper story. Yeah. And, and then I, you know, I sort of ran with it. And, and there's, but there's so much like, I don't know. And I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm just kissing your ass here. Cause I really, I, I really mean this, but there's, there's layers of like satire there. And there's like, I mean, at the beginning where you have like Cobra, their, their evil fortress has been foreclosed on and you have like the, the henchmen standing in the unemployment line. I mean, that's, Oh, I love that. That's like a, that's like a joke from like the tick or venture brothers or, you know, something way later and more ironic that, that, you know, that was kind of ahead of its time in a way, you know? Well, I recently read somebody's review of it, and he's talking about the loan shark uh-huh. that Cobra Commander goes to, who said he was uh, right out of something that David Lynch would create. Oh, yes. But yet, but yet it was six years before Twin Peaks. Ooh. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that was an interesting observation. What, was that deliberate? Like, were you maybe a fan I, I of never Racerhead? Or... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh... No, actually, I was a fan of Eraserhead. So maybe, you know, maybe a little bit there. Who knows? So now you, you wrote an episode for Jem, and there's there's a, definitely a story behind this that I'd, I'd like you to share if you wouldn't mind, because uh, apparently it's it's quite a well-regarded episode. Well, the story is that uh, in addition to my duties as producer, staff producer, I also had a contract that I would write X number of scripts mm-hmm. per year. And it was getting close to renewing my contract, and I think I still had six scripts that um, I hadn't written. And they didn't want to pay me not to write them. Well, of course not. So they came to me and said, well, you're going to write a, a gym episode. <laughs> and even though I had supervised uh, most of the recording sessions, I really wasn't that involved in the show. Sure. And I didn't really want to write a girl's show. You know, I was the G.I. Joe Transformers guy. Mm-hmm. So I decided to um, pitch, because Hasbro ultimately had to approve all, the, all the, the premises, all the pitches. So I wrote one that I thought there was no way that they would approve, because I did a, um, a story that involved... Uh, Jen and her sister, or Jerrica and her sister, finding their mother's or their father's diary, <clears throat> and it talks about the history of her, of their parents and their relationship and their love affair. And I guess Jerrica's mother had been a folk singer in the '60s and had died, so they grew up without their mother. So I created the scene showing how Jerrica's mother had died, which was kind of a ripoff of the Carol Lombard story, okay. which I think she was on a USO tour or something, and uh, her plane had crashed into the side of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she died in the fire. Mm-hmm. So I wrote that thinking, oh, I'm never going to go for this. This is just really pretty. Yeah, I'll, I'll get out of this now, because they'll never buy this, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And they loved it. Wow. So then I was convinced I had to do it. <laughs> And you actually wrote a scene where, where a, like, a, a plane crashes into a mountain and someone dies in a fireball, and it made it into a kid's show. Yep. Yeah, That's because, you know, one of the guidelines that we had was, um, you know, with G.I. Joe and Transformers, is nobody died. Right. And we couldn't even use real bullets. It had to be lasers. And, like, you know. Well, that's not handy parachute. For, yeah. Blue lasers for, uh, I guess, the good guys and red for the bad. I can't remember. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. I think I don't know. Someone one of one of our listeners will certainly correct you if that's not right. There, <laughs> that's one thing the internet's great for is telling you when you're wrong. <laughs> so, but so then uh, it's uh, um, to, you know follow up on the story. I was invited to attend JamCon, uh, which will be held in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, in September. So they actually have a convention but, for uh, for fans of Jam. That's I mean, is this is this a new yeah. thing or is it an ongoing thing? Or? I think this might be the third or fourth year. Oh, nice! Yeah, I you mentioned that to me the first time. My first thought was, "There's a like, there's a gen con, gem convention," and then I'm like, "Of course, there's a gem convention." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was invited by this very nice young man who um, it just so happens that Out of the Past, which was the title of the show, was his favorite episode mm-hmm. because when he was a young boy, his mother had passed away. And I guess on the day that she died, he'd come home from school and turn on the TV and watch this episode of Jim, my episode. Wow. And so it was very comforting to him, um, you know, helped him to deal with his, uh, his pain. That's, that is, that's just so cool. Yeah, that's fantastic that you're, I was, you know. I was very humbled by it. And, and a job you didn't even want in the first place <laughs> ended up uh, really making a difference to somebody. That's actually, you know, kind of a full yeah. circle thing. That's great. Yeah. So now you, well, and going to cold slither when I turned in my script mm-hmm. and I knew that there were with Jen, you know, they had hired songwriters to write all the songs. So sure. when I turned in my script, first thing I think was Joe Bacall said, okay, well, where's the song? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you, 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 you wrote the script. You know, based around the song, where's the song? So um, then I went out and wrote the song. Or I wrote the lyrics for the song. Uh, mm-hmm. Originally, um, my wife, who is a, uh, a lyricist and a songwriter, mm-hmm. she wrote the music. Oh, and nice. then Sundo um, didn't want to pay her. Ah. And as a working songwriter, she didn't want to um, do it for free. Mm-hmm. And the reason they didn't want to pay her is because Rob Walsh was already contracted to write all the music. So sure. then I sat down with Rob, give him an idea what uh, what I was going for, and then he wrote the music uh, to the lyrics for the song, as as we all know him now. And so now you're not only the author of that script, but also the co-writer of that song. So you get uh, like that's correct. Credit I actually the... made more money. I made more money off writing the song than I actually made off the script. Because <laughs> every time it aired, I, I collected royalties. That's fantastic. I, I really wish a clean, full version of that song existed. Like, because in the episode, there's you know, there's dialogue over part of it, and there's you know, there's a Transformers episode where there's quite a big chunk of instrumental of it, but you you never get the whole song. And and I think if if that were up on iTunes or something like that, people you know, people would buy the hell out of that. Oh yeah. Well, I, I do believe that somewhere in uh, my storage unit in Vermont, I actually have a cassette of the complete song. Oh, nice. Well, so when I get back and get my stuff and bring it out to Los Angeles, I'll, yeah. I'll look for it. And as you know, as part owner of that song, I, w- I would imagine it's in your right to do that, right? I mean, you can mm-hmm. make, make a couple bucks. I would think so. I don't, I don't own the publishing, uh-huh. but uh, I would imagine I can work out some kind of deal. Next DVD release thrown as an extra or something. Oh yeah, <laughs> that'd be pretty great. So you, you mentioned sitting in on the on the voice sessions. I wanted to ask you about that a little bit. I, you got to work with all these great guys like uh, uh, Scatman Crothers and uh, Frank Welker and, and Casey Kasem, and 
I, do you have any like stories about that, or uh, I mean, what was that like? Well, yeah. Um, in the beginning, we we uh, the days were really long. It could be like eight to ten hours long. And what we would do is we would do a table read. Mm-hmm. All the actors would come in, literally sit around a table and read through the script from beginning to end, and then we would record it. Mm-hmm. But after a while. Um, a lot of the actors would double book sessions and, you know, they needed to get out early. And then we ended up um, just recording, forget, you know, the, um, bypassing the table read and just recording it from beginning to end. Right. And then that sort of segued into, you know, somebody like Frank, who was very, very busy, mm-hmm. uh, you know. In, oh, sure. He, he basically touched every single cartoon that was on the air at that point. Oh, Yeah. And going back and forward ten years from that point as well. I mean, he's everywhere. So, so he might come in and say, "Oh, Wally, look, you know, I I, I got to get out of here by one o'clock because I got another session at two. Can we just do my lines first? Mm-hmm. And of course, then all the actors would think, "Oh, gee, you know." Yeah, what's so special about him? Yeah. Can I do that? <laughs> so that's how, you know, by time, um, you know, after a couple of years, that's how we ended up doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it made for shorter sessions. I think, you know, doing it that way, it'd be three to four hour sessions. Right. That's a shame because, I mean, you, you worked but, with a lot uh, of great people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Scatman was great because sometimes he'd come in with his guitar and he'd play <laughs> some old songs he used to record. Oh, crap. That's we'd, we'd take a break, you know, every couple hours and sitting in uh, Wally's little waiting room and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he'd talk about um, his past experiences. <clears throat> That's amazing. And, uh, you know, other actors would share their stories that, from different shows that they had worked on. Because a lot of the voiceover actors also were on camera actors. Oh, sure. I know, uh, <laughs> what's his, uh, Dick Gaudier, who did, uh, Rodimus Prime and Serpentor was a, a big TV actor, uh, before he went into voice stuff. And I'm sure there's a lot of others. Yeah. He was on Get Smart, uh-huh. uh, Roger yeah. Carmel. Mm-hmm. Been in a TV series, um, what was it, like The Mother-in-Laws or something when I was a kid. Hmm. Uh, Hank Garrett. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see Three Days of the Condor? I that know the title, but I don't that, think I've Yeah, that sounds that. familiar. Um. Okay. Well, Hank Garrett is this, this uh, assassin dressed up like the postman. Mm-hmm. So Hank used to do some voiceover work. And, and I remember him telling the story that he started out as a wrestler. <laughs> nice. And, and maybe back in the, back in the fifties, and he was like the you know Minnesota farm boy or something. Right. Without, like, well, damn overall. Well, speaking of wrestlers on GI Joe, did you ever uh, did you ever sit in on uh, Sergeant Slaughter? What was that like? I did, but you know, with 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 him, mm-hmm. we literally recorded him over the phone. He lived in Connecticut, so he never came out to, to the sessions, but. Um, so we would just call him up, just like we're doing now. Right. He would call the uh, dialogue over the phone. And so he would literally oh. phone it in. <laughs> <laughs> literally phone it in. <laughs> nice. That's really cool. So, so oh, go ahead, did, they, did they film his live, like, I, I don't even know if you know this or not, but did, like, did they film his live action segments there, t- like, in Connecticut? Because I know he would do introductions uh, to the show. My, my guess is that uh, they did. I don't remember, mm. but I, I. But if he didn't come out to do voiceover work, 
he didn't come out to do any live action work either. Mm. I think those wraparounds came a little later, like after the first run of the show when they put it uh -huh. into like you know the second wave of syndication or whatever. So maybe mm. I'm guessing maybe like his wrestling stuff was starting to wind down a little, and maybe he had a little more time. But I, I'm I'm speculating. I don't know that. But uh, you you had mentioned like uh, working with like uh, Chris Lotta. I really wanted to to pick your brain about that because uh, I mean I mentioned before my favorite character on Transformers was Starscream, and of course. We're all huge fans of Cobra Commander. I mean, oh yeah, you guys must have had fun writing for for him because he was just fantastic. He was amazing. <laughs> Big energy, uh, a fun guy, uh, lots of laughter, uh, but crazy guy too. Right. <laughs> Well, it seems like you, you really wrote Cobra Commander, like all of you guys wrote Cobra Commander sort of, as you went on, you realized just how ridiculous you could make him and how over the top, and I say that as a compliment, like I'm not, that's not a complaint at all, but you made him more and more ridiculous as the show went on, and, and Chris Lotta just ran with it, and everything Absolutely. you threw him, it was just great. Yeah. It was... Um... You know, it was just, it was fun to do that. And working with Chris was great. And, um, he loved the character, played it well. That's so. great. Yeah. You could tell he must have been having fun with that because you can't, you don't, you don't do readings like that if you're just kind of punching a clock and say, ah, oh, time to, time to rant and rave about Joe again, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Now, were you involved with the, with the movies for these various things like Transformers movie and the G.I. Joe movie and so forth? The, the, the ones in the 80s, the, uh, the animated ones. Only a bare minimum. Mm -hmm. um, I was, uh, you know, I think I've given copies of the scripts, you know, for some feedback. Flint, mm -hmm. uh, Ron Friedman, who um, I think wrote the original five-part episodes, maybe for both G.I. Joe and Transformers, mm -hmm. had a contract to write the movies. Wow. And then Flint and Jay Bacall, um, we uh, wrote numerous drafts mm -hmm. um, of the Transformers movie. I think maybe Buzz had more involvement in the G.I. Joe movie because he was a story editor at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had very little involvement. The two things I remember were that I had suggested, I think I'd seen Pixar's very first and this is when George Lucas still on Pixar. Their very first computer animated short. Oh, that little uh, the the short with the lamp. Yeah, and I was just blown away. Sure. And I suggested to Tom and Joe, oh, let's let's do Transformers, you know, CGI. Mm -hmm. And I think they considered it for about two seconds. <laughs> and everyone's fear was that a week before the film was supposed to open, I think it opened uh, like August of '86 or '87. Yep. Yeah, they were afraid to get a, they get a phone call from Nelson Shin saying, hey, I just got Optimus Prime to move his head. <laughs> <laughs> As you can imagine, it took forever to render. Oh, I, I bet. Uh, themes, you know, back back in the day. Mm -hmm. So um, you weren't you weren't heavily involved with the, the, the actual like the story uh, development for those things. No. Like the, OK. No, I think I gave some glimpse some notes, whether they were used or not, I don't remember. And the only other thing I do remember is I was grateful that I wasn't the one who had to tell Orson Welles that he was <laughs> playing a planet. 
<laughs> well, we were. I was definitely going to steer you there when you when you mentioned the the voice stuff because we are. Th this is primarily a comedy show, and we spend quite a bit of time fascinated with Orson Welles' later years. Did you ever get a chance yeah. to meet him and talk to him? I never did. Ah, there was uh, right around the time that we were recording that. There was a tape that was uh, kind of. Is this the uh, the frozen peas? I don't know if it's the frozen peas or the Paul Masson or something. Uh, yeah. It's just reaming out either the yeah. voiceover director or the yes, ad agency. Oh guy. yeah, we we play that on the show all the time. Yeah, we, we know that it. one well. Oh, yeah. he, between Matt and I, we could quote that thing verbatim. We're just we're <laughs> utterly fascinated. Yeah, and you know, I've been a huge fan of Citizen Kane. Oh sure. Mm -hmm. I was like 19 years old, and I would have loved to have met him, mm -hmm. but the last thing I wanted was um, yeah to see to this great man him. in the in the sort of the twilight of his greatness, you know. Yeah, you know, and he was wheeled around in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. and yeah. and Wally's studio was you know up a narrow flight of stairs. Oh, jeez. I know they ended up putting pretty heavy uh, distortion on him, I guess, to, to cover up for the fact that he was sounding kind of sickly. That's that's a real shame. Well, yeah, because he, he, it was the last thing he ever did. Yeah. yeah. He died shortly after uh, completing it. That's that's really sad. I mean, because I, I mean, that, to me, that's the whole thing about Orson Welles is like he was this incredible, you know, virtuoso. And he somehow between that and, and you know, toward the end there where he's doing, you know, drunk commercials for wine and, and, you know, doing the Transformers movie. Like, what what happened, man? You know? Well, you know, it's 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 Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you kind of... Not everybody's lucky enough to have a career that lasts their entire lifetime. And... Uh, Especially back you then. Gotta, mm. You got to find, you got to pay the bills and, and uh, you know, kind of lower your standards. I suppose that's true. But, you know, as as a kid, I didn't even know who he was. And so in a way, that kind of like, Orson Welles, who's that? And then later on, Citizen Kane, oh, wow, that's that's Unicron, huh? <laughs> kind of a weird way to come about it, but that's, you know. The tale of Unicron's rise to power and slow, slow decline. <laughs> he thinks it would be fun to run a newspaper. All right. Um, so I, you, you... I have no idea what they paid him, but I, I, I'm sure it was worthwhile for him. It, oh yeah, it must have been, and I know in those days he was trying to get money together to to make movies because he was having problems getting. Yeah, he was always money. trying to raise uh, uh, money for his various projects. Yeah. So you know, and if if he had stuck it out, if he'd managed to you know pull through, then you guys may have funded the next masterpiece for all you know. You know, it's kind of yeah, a, kind of an interesting thing. Um, you had you had a cool story when we talked before about uh, what you guys did sort of after hours, like you you all. I guess worked in this Sunbow office, and, yes. and and then hung out together. Is that we did? Because um, you know some of us were already friends before we before we uh, started working Sunbow. Like Flint and I had known each other probably for uh, four or five years before we, we worked at Sunbow. Mm -hmm. uh, and see, my my quest, my initial question to you was, did you guys go out and get drunk or whatever? And you're like, no, we're, we're you know, you, you basically set me straight that you guys were big nerds just like we are. No, we played Risk. Well, we did like to drink. You know, we didn't have <laughs> long lunches. Oh, we sure. Did, we, we, were in, we were in Westwood, which at the time probably had more movie theaters per square mile than any other place in the country. Mm -hmm. 
we'd go see uh, a matinee of something. Uh, and yes, Flint and I, um, we had a regular Sunday night risk game for years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you you you, uh, you dropped a name on me that kind of blew me away when you were telling me that that, uh, with as far as uh, playing D and D. Oh yes, um, I think just before we started working at Sunbow, Flint got involved with Gary Gygax, and they were writing these um, uh, Sagard uh, novels. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to see what the term was at the time. Not endless quest, but I mean where you could you get to the end chapter and you could sort of choose. Oh yeah, choose you your own adventure. Go. The uh, the yeah. fighting fantasy we, books. We sort of did. We sort of did that with Dragon's Lair, uh-huh. uh, the TV series. Oh right. So, okay. um, and I so I, so Gary was living out in LA. He was renting the old King Vidor estate way up in I think Benedict Canyon, sort of overlooked Beverly Hills Hotel. And he had an old uh, carriage house that Flint um, had an office in, and we also had a big uh, table set up for Chainmail. Do you know that game, that role-playing game? Um, I think so, yeah. Okay, well, that's something else we did once a week, was Chainmail. Nice. And um, so uh, Gary and Flynn were doing these Sagar novels, and then occasionally it would be D&D night. Now, I've never played D&D before, but the opportunity to play D&D with Gary Gygax as the Dungeon Master. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when you told me that, that just blew me away because I'm not big into D and D myself. Matt's actually into that sort of thing, and I just I've never really gotten into it. But if I had had that opportunity, absolutely. Oh man, yes. just jump at it. That's amazing. And uh, okay, so now, that, oh, go ahead. I was going to say Gary passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. And uh, but I guess now there's a, a Gary Con. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, I, I want, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the this, the 80s stuff that I grew up with, but uh, Matt is, is a little younger than I, and he grew up on sort of the second wave of your stuff, like uh, the Turtles and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was a big Turtles fan, and my brother was a big Turtles fan. I, I definitely wanted to give some time to that stuff as well. I didn't want to just focus sure. on, on my stuff. So, I mean, Matt, do you have any... Uh... What did, uh, like, what was your... I, I was reading your IMDb page, and you were story editor? Yeah, um, a little backstory. I think because mm. I... I left L.A. in 91, and I went to New York City, and I was an editor at DC Comics. Prior to that, I think, was the first season of um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I didn't really know much about them, and uh, <clears throat> I don't even think I could, uh, I don't even think I had the opportunity to even pitch any stories for them. But what I do remember was that my son, who was five years old at the time, was a huge fan of them. But I couldn't even say Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the correct order. <laughs> I certainly didn't know who the characters were. So um, a few months after I arrived in New York, I'm in DC Comics. I got a phone call from a friend of mine who had an animation studio in New York, and we had worked together on a project for Nickelodeon um, that they ultimately didn't air. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, you know, a friend of mine is the, is the attorney for um, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman, and they're looking for somebody with an animation background to, to do some consulting for them. You know, would you be interested in talking to them? Yeah, sure. 
So uh, I drove up to Northampton, met with them, and and what it was, they were looking for someone because they didn't have a background in animation to sort of supervise the uh, the series that Fred Wolf had uh, developed and was running on the air. And essentially, all I had to do was read the scripts, make my notes, mm-hmm. and then um, forward them to Fred Wolf and hopefully make those changes. So I was an in-house story editor. I think David Wise, at least for the first season, maybe the first couple of seasons, was the story editor for and writer for Fred Wolf Film. Yeah, what I had read uh, or actually heard in an interview with him uh, listening for Transformers-related stuff, actually, was he was talking about the Turtles, and he claims to have created the base sort of character sketches that we're now familiar with. Like, he took the yeah. comics had kind of changed them for animation and, and made, you know, the characters. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. Well, the the design is dramatically different from the comics. Right, but their yeah, their personalities. Well, oh, yeah. They well have done that. All, all I know is it origi- you know, originated from Fred Wolf Films. Mm-hmm. And to Fred's credit, the success of the Turtles, mm-hmm. I think, in my opinion, was based on what Fred had done. Now, Peter and Kevin were interested in seeing something a little different because it was very far removed from their original comics. So in mm-hmm. addition to um, hiring me to review all the scripts and, and make notes based on what they wanted to see and, more importantly, what they didn't want to see, mm-hmm. um, they also hired me to write um, uh, a Christmas special and to completely rewrite the Bible. Wow. Wow. A whole new, new show. Uh, and it was on the heels of the Batman animated series, which right. was brilliant. Yes, it was. And they mm-hmm. said, oh, man, that's, that's what we want. <laughs> so that's what I gave them. Oh, nice. Um, and as you can probably imagine, it wasn't very well received by Fred. Hmm. And, uh, but, you know, he, was polite and uh, was in a position where he had to um, review the material, listen to me, set up the meetings with Judy Price at um, at CBS, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> sort of I felt like I sort of got him on board. But at the end of the day, um, what sort of killed the idea of a whole new reimagining of the Turtles was that Warner Brothers, I think, was spending about $500,000 per episode. Wow. CBS was only paying two hundred and fifty mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the Saturday morning Turtles. And CBS had no financial stake in the Turtles whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So their, you know, their revenue was just based on ads, uh, uh, advertising. Mm-hmm. And right. The show was already number one in its time slot. Uh, so so it ain't broke, price, don't fix it. <laughs> argument to me was, what's my incentive? Right. I'm already number one. You know, why would I want to spend an extra two hundred fifty thousand dollars? Right. And, yeah. and I imagine at that point you you do realize, oh wait, I am writing a toy commercial, and uh, you know, artistic integrity is all well and good, but you know, at the end of the day, they're probably not going to care. Exactly. So, um, so what you would what you came up with would have been more in line with the way the the comics were a little darker, a little more. It was, 
it was very darker and it was very, you know, much closer to the comic books, which is what Peter and Kevin mm-hmm. wanted. Well, that's really interesting. Wow. They created a lot of new human characters, but um, um, I'm still proud of that work that I did. And in fact, now that Nickelodeon owns the Turtles, I've actually been trading uh, emails with the director of development to see if I can get involved in helping them redevelop. Um, very nice. Oh, wow. Turtles series. Yeah, see, we had we had kind of assumed, you know, based on what, what little we knew, that you took over sort of in the middle, and, and I had heard that the later episodes weren't received as well, and I was worried, well, wait a minute, I know this guy's pretty good. Why, you know, why did it take a dive? And it sounds like, well, because they didn't do what you told them to do. <laughs> you know, I don't want to say that. Oh, of course not. But, um, and again, I haven't watched the show. That's uh, what I've heard, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I reviewed every single script and I gave them pages and pages of notes mm-hmm. and, um, and they made their decisions based on what they wanted to do. I understand that. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. No, I, I definitely don't want to put you in a position where you're, you're bad mouthing anyone. Of course I'm not, I, that's not, uh, oh, no. that's not cool. No, and as I say, I, I give Fred a lot of credit, uh-huh. um, cause, cause that show made those turtles popular. Oh, yeah, and Matt, you were, oh, yeah. you were all over well, that show at the time. Oh, yeah, and I mean, that show went, like, ten years, I think. Yeah, and it spawned, what, three live-action movies? and Three live-action movies, another animated series. Right, and it's still going, yeah. much like Transformers and G.I. Joe, they're still, you know, yeah. still getting some life out yeah. of it, so that's good. Yeah, plus, plus the uh, the CGI movie that was really... Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. And, uh, and like, and, and, you know, now Peter has sold the, the Turtles to Nickelodeon, and they're going to mm-hmm. bring them back yet again. Well, it'd be great to if, if there's a chance that we could see, you know, your your spin on it. I hope we get a hope you get a shot at that. Oh yeah. All right, we have a we have a few uh, letters here from our listeners, and I'm gonna I'm gonna edit as we go here because some of them tend to be a bit wordy. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, let's see here. Our first letter comes from Tidro, and she writes. Dear Mr. Hill, I'm fascinated by censorship in Western animation. I'm curious if you were ever asked to change something you'd written to make it more kid-friendly. Conversely, did you ever write something you thought might be censored, but which made it to air? The only time I ever remember having to change anything was, uh, and I think we talked about this episode before, Starscream's Brigade. Uh The original title was... um, was 30 seconds over Megatron. Right. And it was, for me, it was a play off of the old World War II film, 30 seconds over Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And I think it was somebody at Hasbro went, oh, you know. Don't mention the war. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, you know, I gave it something a little more innocuous. Right. And starts getting the game. But I mean, that episode uh, still opens with a flashback to World War II, and you have, you know, very clearly Allied forces firing on Japanese planes, and, you know, I mean, yeah, they got lasers like on yeah. G.I. Joe, but it's still very clearly World War II. Yeah, as as far as I can remember, they they asked for no other changes than just, just the, the title. Change in the title. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. So you, you made it up pretty good then, or that, or you had a good sense of, of what would fly, would you think, or? Well, I think that was always in the back of our minds. What we what we knew we could, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what the guidelines were. I don't think we ever tried to slip anything past anyone. Sure. You know, we knew we couldn't kill anybody, um, so we never even tried to do that. 
Now let me ask you this: There's there's a point in the in the GI Joe movie, and I know you you said you weren't really involved with the, the story development, but do you know, you know, being around these guys, they had originally intended to kill off, I guess, Duke, and then they decided, no, we better not. Was there any kind of reaction to that? Do you remember any kind of? You know, I vaguely remember that um, discussion, and it may have something to do with them just thinking, "Oh, look what happened when we when we killed off Optimus Prime." Ah, yeah, that makes sense. No, it's it's really obvious, right? Even as a kid watching that movie, that they must have done a retake. Like the way the scene is shot, it's pretty clear that he dies. But then they say, "Uh, he's in a coma." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Uh, next question comes from Shauna, and she writes, as a writer for merchandise-heavy shows, were there ever characters you wanted to create that were rejected because they wouldn't sell as a toy? In that same vein, was it difficult to write for some popular characters that sold well but were lousy in premise? Let's see. First part of that question... Uh, I'm sorry, repeat that question again? Please? Oh, sure. Um... She wanted to know if, if you tried to write your own characters and were told you couldn't because they wouldn't sell as a toy, or, you know, they... We, we talked about this briefly in our pre-show, that you, you wrote characters that didn't even have toys. Right. Uh, so, so, the, so the, that asked, was the one time I think it was ever done was in The Gambler, I wrote a character that didn't exist as a toy, and mm-hmm. nobody batted an eye. Nice. Um, I don't think that was ever done again. But I don't recall anyone ever telling us that we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Now there were a lot of incidental characters and that sort of thing that you know on Transformers and I probably on GI Joe as well that there never were toys for. Maybe you intended to make them and then didn't, or I, I don't know. But uh, it seems like they let you guys you know create what you needed for the story, and, and it seems like they must not have yeah, given we, you a lot of crap for that. Mm-hmm. We pretty much had free reign. Mm-hmm. You know, every once in a while. I don't know if it was every six months or every year, but whenever they were gearing up for a new toy line, mm-hmm. you know, we'd get a memo saying these are uh, the new toys that are coming out. Sure. And we want you to work them into the stories. And, and going back to Starscream's Brigade, Combaticons. Yep. You had five guys that you had to throw in there, and you did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And that's how I dealt, dealt with that. Yep. You know, if there was a character that I, that I personally wasn't really that interested in, it was a new toy. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't write him into my my pitch. Sure, let one of the other guys do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Fair enough. All right, uh, next question comes from Nat. Uh, A lot of questions about the G.I. Joe movie that you're not going to be able to answer here, so I'll just skip those. Um, I could probably shoot this one at you, though, because you you said you wrote for the the Deke version of that uh, show as well? Yes. So you did have to deal with... I don't think I've ever seen them. Really? Yeah, I, I wasn't even aware it existed until relatively recently. Matt, I imagine you must have grown up on the on those as well. The the ones that took place after the GI Joe movie. The, the oh yeah, yeah, animated a bit differently. Did those ones I didn't see near like nearly as much of. Ah, because I, I imagine yeah, I could say I don't. Go ahead. I imagine writing for for that version of the show, you had to deal with a lot of the status quo that changed in the movie, where they decided instead of being terrorists, the Cobra were these like snake guys and a weird. Snake cult. Right. Do you, do you remember any of that at all? Actually, I don't. It was um, Doug Booth, who worked with us over at Sunbow, was mm-hmm. a story editor. And he called me up and said he was doing the new shows at Deke. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I wrote two or three of them before I left L.A. and went back to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't remember much about. Um, Fair enough. The, the the gist of it is the movie Bible and the changes. The movie were, created this whole made. new backstory that that maybe not contradicted everything that came before, but it was definitely kind of out of left field, and we were all like, "Huh?" And it it sounds like the Deke show sort of continued on that vein, but. It, it may have, and to be honest with you, I just don't remember. Fair enough. Uh, th- here's a good question also from Nat. Uh, how close was an animated G.I. Joe Transformers crossover to actually being produced? I know you guys every now and then would throw sort of a, a minor character in that would appear in both shows or something like that. Was well, there, there was that one with Cobra Commander running around in Transformers. I suppose that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sh- I can't recall ever really talking about doing a, uh, you know, a real serious crossover. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a couple of character Joe, ca- a couple of Joe characters appear in a, a Transformer episode. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the Cold Slither song without the lyrics yeah. appeared in a Transformers episode. But now, was that more a, a, a because you guys had sort of limited production? You know, like okay, we need some popular music. Well, we already made this song for GI Joe. We already have the rights to it. Let's just throw that in there. Or was it a like was it a deliberate nod? That, uh, in that case, it was probably the former. Uh-huh. In terms of uh, bringing some characters over into, I don't think we ever brought a Transformers into a G.I. Joe, but bringing G.I. Joe characters over in Transformers was definitely mm-hmm. uh, sort of an in-house intentional thing to do. Right. Just because, why not? Yeah, I mean, if you're, all, if you're producing all this stuff under the same roof anyway, well, you know, why not? <laughs> But uh, it, it sounds to me, talking to you, that you really, and, and I don't mean this as a, as a criticism or anything, but you guys really weren't thinking in terms of continuity as far as, you know, you weren't telling some long, serialized story. You were just telling 22 minutes at a time. So, you know, it's not like you had some yeah, master I mean, plan and, you know. There was, I'm sure there was some nod to continuity, but not in terms of the serialized form. Right. I mean, for example, uh, you know, the burden hearts to bear. I can't even remember where that fell into the continuity, you know, based on the movie. It it, it aired uh, the week before Return of Optimus Prime did, which was just a kick to the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, and we actually, and we had no control over that whatsoever. Oh, sure. And that was, and that's sort of one of the reasons why we couldn't have a really serious continuity <laughs> Because there's no guarantee, because it was syndicated in so many different markets. Oh, yeah, and they'd show them whatever order they wanted, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. exactly. Now, another little piece of trivia was that I guess in um, the Bozo show, Mm -hmm. and this is what got me into the Writers Guild (laughs) the Bozo show in some markets was showing um, like one act. Of a GI Joe episode per day. Wow! Wow! That's so, kind of a continuing thing every three days or something. <laughs> so one of my responsibilities as a producer show, in addition to writing PSAs, was I wrote Bozo's dialogue <laughs> in, to nice. introduce um, each segment. Uh-huh. To tell you what you saw yesterday and you know what you were going to see today. Wow. And that got and, you in the Writers Guild, writing all these other got, shows didn't? Exactly, because, uh, and I think it's still exists today, most animation companies, with the exception of, uh, you know, like Family Guy and maybe The Simpsons, mm-hmm. are not signatory to the Writers Guild. Huh. So we don't get, we don't get residuals every time. Wow. 
That's insane. But Larry Harmon Productions was signatory to the Writers Guild. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so and not only that, you, you wrote. Fight. I mean, I, apart from that, you also wrote from for another huge icon that goes back probably to your childhood. I would imagine. I mean, Bozo's been around for you know since what the fifties or the sixties or something? yeah, something like that. I, yeah, I watched Bozo when I was a kid. Yeah, so that must have been a nice little thrill for you to you know. Yeah, to yeah. Put words in his mouth. Yeah, that's how. I got in the Writer's Guild by writing dialogue for Bozo. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right, next set of questions comes from Ashwin, our friend in India. This, these are very long, and I'm going to try to edit here. <laughs> um, let's see. What I've always been curious about was the writing process for the episodes, because you guys really snuck some crazy stuff in there. Were there ideas that were just too crazy, ideas that had to be toned down or rejected? So it's kind of similar to what was asked before. Uh, basically asking... You guys did crazy stuff. Was it just basically, what was the what was the atmosphere like? Like, it sounds like you guys were just trying to be entertaining and not really, you know, trying to be entertaining. But I, I think, and I mentioned this uh, in one of our previous conversations, a lot of the times, an idea would start with, "Wouldn't it be cool if?" Right. And then we kind of run with it. And that's really cool because yeah. you get that feeling watching those episodes where it's just like. He has a weather-dominating machine. Let's run with that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Cobra Commander, I talked to you about that. Uh, I don't even think this one's a question. Sorry. <laughs> very long questions here. Uh, suffice it to say, you have a very big fan in India. So, uh, so, <laughs> so you got that going for you. <laughs> Uh, last set of questions comes from our friend Pat Loika. Pat is a great, uh, I know, a huge fan uh, of yours, and I know he's going to be drawing his cover art based on, uh, I imagine, G.I. Joe stuff, so, uh, mm-hmm. so that'll be cool. Uh, Cold Slither is quite possibly one of the most entertaining and unforgettable episodes of G.I. Joe. I've always wondered how, how that episode came to be, since it didn't seem like an episode with the introduction for new characters or toys. Was the idea behind it pitched to you, or did you pitch this in jest and ended up getting it made anyway? You've talked about this a little bit, but... Uh, is there anything else? Yeah, you yeah. It, it was, uh, no, it wasn't given to me. It was my idea. And it, it, again, it, it, I, I sort of went with the Pied Piper aspect of it and just ran with it. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Sure. And, um, you know, for me, it was just kind of another, I don't want to say a throwaway episode. It was just one of many story ideas that I pitched. Sure. That, um, Everyone said, "Oh yeah, this would be great. Let's do this." Now you you did quite a lot for GI Joe. Am I am I correct in that? But uh... yes, uh, in the fact that um, you know, in addition to writing, I um, as a producer, mm-hmm. when the scripts and we were cranking these things out, I, I think I told you before. You, you know, every Friday I had to deliver a script to. Marvel production so they could sign it to a storyboard artist so they could, you know, get a jump on it over the weekend. Sure. Now, how many of you were there? Like, how many other guys were delivering their scripts on Friday as well? Like, just to get a, a sense of the scope. Uh, well, Transformers is probably the same thing. Mm-hmm. Although, Transformers, I think, primarily with the animation was done in Korea, and G.I. Joe was primarily Japan. Mm-hmm. But it still was a lot of work for Marvel Productions because they were they were handling all of our shows. Sure. Mm. So um, I also you know supervised the storyboards, mm-hmm. 
recording sessions and uh, the when the when the footage came in and was edited, and they'd send me a copy of that, and I, I'd review it to uh, order retakes because, as you know, uh, a lot of times uh, characters would be off model, sure. colors would be wrong. Uh, you know, sometimes it'd be a character with no head or with no legs. <laughs> so you try to do your best to get that corrected before it went out the door. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, you know, I think I was told, well, you know, we can only afford to do ten. Mm -hmm. So you got to pick your ten. Pick the ten you know, worst. Oh, so we're going to have to let the other ones go by. Uh -huh. so, wow. Um, That's really uh, cool. I know that there, there's still a lot of... Uh, Mistakes that people that we that people catch that we just either didn't have the time or just couldn't afford. To oh, sure, because I mean, at the at the height of all this, you had what three different shows running sixty five episode seasons, just like yeah, I think, it, I, think, I think at one time, you know, we, we had like, of course, these were these, you know, this wasn't Saturday morning anymore, it's right? Weekday afternoon, but I think you know, we had GI Joe, Transformers, Gem, you know, and they were like the, the top three shows. Mm -hmm. And um, you know we were doing sixty-five half hours a season, so wow. we were really cranking them out. One of my my question as far as GI Joe went, I, I guess since you were so heavily involved, who? I mean, you know, kind of a kind of a softball question, but really, who was your favorite character to write for? Like, I imagine some were more fun than others. Some you must have had favorites. You know, um, I was thinking about that earlier today, and I, I you know, I think. Um, Storm Shadow is actually one of my favorite characters, and I don't know that I wrote for him, but I do remember at one point near the end of one season, mm -hmm. uh, Keone Young, who was the voiceover actor for it, you know, he'd come in, he only had a few lines, and I, I turned to him one day, I said, you know what, I'm going to write a script just for you. Oh, cool. <laughs> and um, I don't know if that ever got made. I there was one script that I wrote, and I forget what the original title was. Um, I think the aired version was you know, like "Into Your Tent, I Silently Creep." Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it was slightly different than my original version. Mm -hmm. um, Buzz, who Dixon, who was the uh, story editor, on, had made some changes. That at the time I wasn't completely happy with, it. Mm -hmm. and. Um, so I, I insisted that Buzz share story credit with me. And I think that might have been the one that um, you know I had written specifically for for Keone. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know I'm I'm really very cognizant of the fact that I you know Starscream and Cobra Commander were great characters to write for. But other GI Joe characters I I. I don't remember quite as well, you know, which was my favorite. Right. Well, it makes sense. I mean, like I say, Chris Lotta, you go to any kid kind of my age, even going down to, to Matt's age, and, and that's the number one thing they remember is that guy with that voice, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Remember that voice forever. Yeah. Uh, one more question also from Pat. As someone who is still writing, what's the biggest difference between writing for TV in the 80s compared to today, aside from the times, of course? And then he says, thanks for all your work and the hours of entertainment and for answering my questions. Cold Slither forever. Well, the truth is, I haven't written any animation for television since probably the late 90s. Mm -hmm. um, 
I have a couple of projects that I'm pitching around town. In fact, one uh, you know, just got pitched to Disney Channel yesterday. Mm. <clears throat> I'm waiting to hear back on So um, I really don't know what it's like these days. <laughs> I don't know if they're still doing, you know, 55, 60-page scripts. Sure. Um, well, but in a, in a like, general sense, as far as writing, you know, writing for television in general, I mean, you're still writing scripts, I would imagine, right? Yes. Um, you know, today I was uh, working on the third draft of a pilot script for a live-action TV series. So, in that respect, it really hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's still the same as it ever was. Is, is that anything you want to you want to share with us, or is it maybe not ready yet? Or, I mean, by all means, if you have anything to plug, I want to, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I'm not. I don't really think of myself as superstitious, but, but. I'm always reluctant to talk about something that's not uh, quite oh, sure. ready. I yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I always hate it when, when people get me excited about a project that doesn't surface, so I, I, I get you there. Exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fair enough. All right, I did have one final question for you, and I, I, I heard you mention this uh, to me before, and I wanted to kind of get you on the record for this. Uh, you, you've seen the live-action Transformers, the Michael Bay movie, and you've seen the live-action G.I. Joe movie. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, what what you think of sort of the modern takes on the stuff that you helped kick off. I loved the first Transformers film. Really? And when it was first announced, um, I was concerned because I thought, oh, man, they're right. going to screw it up. Right. They're just not going to get it right, and they're going to they're gonna screw it up so badly that nobody will ever be able to come back and do it again. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I went in with low expectations, but I, I, I really loved it. The oh, second cool. one... I didn't enjoy it as much. I felt, uh, you know, a lot of the action sequence, I felt like it was, you know, it was a video game. Right. Mm -hmm. But I really loved the first one. I thought it looked great. It was amazing to see um, all the Transformers uh -huh. as real live characters. That's cool, isn't it? Um, pardon me? Oh, no, go ahead. The G.I. Joe film, I felt I had to see. Sure. Again, I was convinced they were going to screw it up, and I, I and I was disappointed. It also felt like I was watching a video game, <laughs> but I felt that um, I, I, not that I want to say that we took it really seriously, but I felt like they didn't take it seriously enough. Oh, there were definitely a lot of winks to the camera. A lot of, I mean, yeah, every little, every other line little, was like a real American hero knowing it's half the battle. Yeah. You know. I felt like it was a little too tongue-in-cheek, whereas I felt like the, tra the Transformers movie was, yeah, we, we buy this. Mm -hmm. these, you know, these, these robots really do exist in our universe. And so, I bought it. I, Same I, way that years ago when I saw you know, um, the Roger Rabbit film, right. mm. I, I bought that a cartoon character existed in the same universe that I lived in. That's oh yeah, that's pretty high praise. I mean, as a as a fan, I was I gotta say I wasn't you know I wasn't thrilled with the Michael Bay treatment. I just I didn't like the direction he took it. I didn't like that he focused more on on the human characters than the robots. But but hearing you know from you, one of the guys who kind of helped build that 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 is definitely you know high praise, and I'm I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that you know it's appreciated by you know you. So that's good. <laughs> Well, I, I, I actually was, my second thought when it was first announced was, well, how come nobody's calling me and asking for my <laughs> In fact, 
I had met Don Murphy, one of the producers, years ago mm-hmm. when he was just starting out, before he even ever did his first film, which was, or his first big film, anyway, that put him on the map, which was Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. I had read somewhere that Michael Bay, I guess, tried to watch the animated shows and hated them. Oh. <laughs> That's that can't be a good sign uh, for you know for you saying oh well <laughs> probably not in the best of hands there. <laughs> but but I guess, yeah, I, I would have appreciated a phone call to say hey we're thinking about doing this movie and. Uh, now, did they talk to any of you guys? Did they talk to Flint or Buzz or anybody on the on these projects? Or not that I'm aware of. Uh, wow, that's, 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 that's uh, yeah. Yeah, I know Flint is friends with Don uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the you know the closest Flint may have come to was just his involvement with the video games. Right. Well, and that's what he's doing now, right? He's he's more into the the gaming end of things. Yeah, he's been doing that for uh, quite some time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think um, he started maybe back in um, late eighties or early nineties. Oh wow! He did the James James Bond video game. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. Well, that's that's pretty much all I had for you. I did I did have one final kind of a goof question to to hit you with. Um, you know, you did write all those PSAs, and and you knowing is half the battle. I got what's the other half of the battle? <laughs> My fiance says know. it's killing. Um, uh, you know that works for me. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that I ever asked that question myself. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Every every time she hears like that the, line, she just likes to turn to me and says, "The other half is killing." Like, yeah, I'm gonna have to like ask that, him. Uh, years ago, Woody Allen wrote a book mm-hmm. called uh, "Without Feathers." Oh, I have that book. I love it. He, okay, well, it's it's from I think an E. e. Cummings poem. Hope is the thing without feathers. So right. Woody Allen asked the question: If hope is the thing without feathers, or with feathers, what is the thing without feathers? Right. Very nice. All right, Michael. Well, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, all your, you know, having to stretch back 25 years and uh, yeah. appease fans of your, you know, a job you had a million years ago. And uh, I hope you know your your stuff is oh, still appreciated to this day. Well, it's great, and I appreciate it. And it's been quite a revelation for me in the last couple of years to discover that, um, you know. These things that I did so long ago are still very popular and uh, are near and dear to people's hearts and, and are still relevant in people's lives. So um, it actually makes me feel a little, a little more proud of the, of the work I did. And had I known 25 years later, you know, yeah. I might have, uh, might have tried even harder. <laughs> Well, we, we definitely appreciate uh, everything oh, yeah. you did, and we appreciate your time. And uh, Thanks a lot. Right. All right. Well, thank care. you no, very thanks. much. All right. This show was produced by me, Ron Algarwatt, with Matt Robotham and featured Michael Charles Hill. As this interview was conducted five years ago, I'm not actually sure what Mr. Hill is up to these days. According to his Facebook page, he's currently writing and producing at Working Man Pictures. His classic episodes of G.I. Joe, Transformers, Gem, and the rest are, of course, still in regular circulation. To learn more about me, visit algar.com. That's double A-L-G-A-R dot com. Thanks for listening.